back in our fourth ever episode, we started our discussion of the fate of Malaysian Airlines flight MH370 with the following. The final recorded words by anyone on board Malaysian Airlines flight MH370 were simply... Good night, Malaysian 370. Moments later, the flight turned off its scheduled route and veered 15 degrees to the right, never to be seen or heard from again. It's now been three months since the flight disappeared, and despite a flurry of activity off the coast of Australia, when it was thought the black box recorder had been located at the bottom of the Indian Ocean, we seem no closer now than we were then to knowing what happened to the passengers and crew of Flight MH370. This week we finally closed the book on the topic by reviewing Ian Higgins' The Hunt for MH370. And with that, it's case closed. This podcast is coming to an end. After all, we did say that once the mystery of MH370 was solved, we would put this podcast to rest. I'd like to thank the following people. Mungo, uh, sorry, hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm the one who's actually read the book, and it's not exactly case closed after all. There, there are still questions, lingering conspiracies, uh, and people dressed like Indiana Jones to consider. So this isn't the end? No, it's just the end of the beginning. What does that even mean? I don't know, but one idea I do have is to play that oldie timey theme. The podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, starring Dr. M.R.X. Denteth, and featuring Josh Addison as the interlocutor. Hello and welcome to the podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. I am Josh Addison, sitting next to me as ever is Dr. M. Denteth, and we're, we're going back... Back, back, back through the mists of time to talk about a thing that we actually have talked about lots and lots and lots and lots of times over the years. We first talked about in our fourth ever episode. It's kind of the mascot of our podcast. It is a little bit. It's a depressing mascot in which a lot of people supposedly died. Mm. I say supposedly because there are people who think the plane didn't crash and there are people who think the plane never existed and presumably there are people out there who think that nothing exists at all and this podcast is just a figment of your imagination and if so well done mm. well done yes. we are of course talking about MH370 Flight MH370 something you're completely aware of because you listen to the intro to this very podcast precisely and if you didn't I don't know how you're listening no. to podcasts. Although actually a lot of people do skip the first 30 seconds of a podcast. Yeah, because no, it's going to be boring theme mm. tune and the like. So maybe you do maybe you skip ahead yeah. and go, I have no idea what they're talking about. Well, you do now, unless, of course, you've skipped to this particular point, at which point we are talking about the fate of Malaysian Airlines flight MH360. 370. Well, that one as well. So, yeah. Now, if you've skipped the first 45 seconds okay, of the this, podcast... This is going to go on ad infinitum, I can see. Yes, it is. So uh, can I can pull you out of the this? fact that I haven't done any research it's for this episode well, no, that's, as revenge. As revenge, no, precisely. You're not doing any research last exactly, week. Exactly, exactly. Now, if you've just joined us... This I episode. may have to murder you. We'll see how that goes. Um... If you yes. just joined us, Josh is going to murder me on mm. the podcast's Guide to the Conspiracy. And if you have just joined us, you'll never know why. <laughs> Precisely. But that's okay. Um, yes, yeah, so we, we had, a while ago, um, Em, you had a couple, of, a couple of books supplied to you for reviewing purposes. Oh, no, one book supplied to us for reviewing purposes. The others are Amazon... Kindle books, which right. are going to be read at some particular okay, point. There we go. So I got I got assigned to this book, The Hunt for MH370. Given to us by, by the Ian publisher. Higgins. So we should probably say something it's about your, that. It's, oh no, it's Pan Macmillan. Is that like Palgrave Macmillan? 
they, are they your publisher as well? Kind of. Well, I mean, basically all, all publishers are kind of the same these well, days. These They're days, all owned yeah. by the same people. Mm. Um, or person. So, so that was my homework, and I've been very, very grudgingly reading it through it over the past few weeks because Josh you know how like I reading. feel about reading. Yeah. Uh, Josh does believe that reading gives people cancer. Oh, just all the cancer. Um, and but then last, then when we were looking for things last week, I, I kind of said to him, "Hey, I've almost finished this book," meaning I've, I was about a third of the way through the book. But I knew that if I said that, then I would have no choice but to read through the entire book and get it ready for this episode. And you did, and I did. Well done. Well, I mean, got, as, as far as you know, I mean, I, mean, you, I could have just made I mean, this up entirely. I mean, it's true. At which point, when I tell the publisher we've reviewed the book, and it turns out you've made up entire sections mm. of the book, the question will be whether the publisher goes, uh, no, or whether they go, any press is good press. It's mm. so hard to tell with the publishing industry these days as to which way things will go. Precisely. So, uh, this book, Humphrey Mage 370, subtitled The Mystery, The Cover-Up, The Truth. Uh, the blurb on the back says, The Humphrey Mage 370 is a riveting page-turner written with the drama and intrigue of a thriller. Piece by tantalising piece, Ian Higgins unpuzzles this most baffling of mercy, m- mysteries, even better. Mercies. Asking, asking Morrissey's. Morrissey's. <laughs> even worse. No, no, don't, please don't bring Morrissey no. into it. I can't stand the man. Uh, asking dangerous questions and revealing shocking truths. That quote from Dick Smith, I assume of the electronics? I'm not sure. Well, Dick I mean, Smith is a, an Australian mm, author, so yes, I'm assuming yes, it is. Yeah. It is Big Dick. The actual Dick Smith. Uh, to our non-antipodean listeners, there is a person in Australia called Dick Smith, uh, despite the fact that a Dick Smith sounds like some sort of maker of artisanal dildos, perhaps. Or a... I might remind you, we also have a, a liquor outlet called oh, we King do have Liquor, King, King, and there's also yes. King Dick's. Yep. Uh, or possibly a... Possibly a surgeon who who sort of specialises in like penis enlargement surgery. Like, like this is Dr. Johnson. We call him the Dick Smith. Anyway, why hello there. I can streamline almost mm. any kind of appendage. This probably doesn't actually matter at all for the purpose of this review. But Dick Smith is a real human being and and a fairly notable one. And is willing to lend his name to blurbs mm. on books. Now I do note. The book is described as being a page-turning thriller. Now, you know me, I've read all the Dan Brown, so I know a page-turning conspiracy thriller when I don't read it. Is it a page-turning thriller? I would have to say no, to be perfectly honest. Um, Riveting, riveting page-turning thriller is not the words I'd use to describe it. Um, I'm not saying it's, it's it's not bad. I'm not, I'm not saying it's, it tries to be a thriller and fails. I think it's trying to be a completely different kind of thing, so I'm not quite sure what they were thinking about with that blurb. What it is, um, is basically a fairly detailed um, history of the hunt for MH370. It's, you know, going from the initial events of it, um, of the plane going missing, right through the entire process of, of uh, exactly who was doing what and how and when and why in attempting to find the aeroplane. And then as the book goes on, it sort of starts to get a bit more conspiratorial as Mr. Higgins deals, goes into his dealings with the ATSB, the Australian Transport Safety Bureau, um, and things do get a little bit cover-up-y, but we'll get into that. Um, so, so I think it's fair to say there are two ways we can take the narrative of where the story of MH370 has got, mm. which is either people claim there's a cock-up in the investigation, which is now being covered up, making it a conspiracy, or it was a conspiracy from the very beginning to hide mm. exactly what happened there. Which side of the coin does Mr. Higgins 
he he definitely seems to go for the 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 cock up being covered up by a conspiracy. Um, so I mean, I don't know. Let, let, let's start at the start. So he um, controversial, but I will allow it. Yep. Uh, he he goes into. In some cases, I would say too much detail, really. In some cases, it seems a little bit like he's just, he's done all the research, damn it, and he's going to put in all these details he's found. It sort of starts off with, you know, on on, on the that fateful day, here's what would have happened. The pilot would have come in, he would have done that, he would have done this. The passengers would have started boarding. This person sat in this seat, that person sat in this seat. And it's like, okay, yes, no, I get it. You've, you've read the passenger manifest. I don't see how that's... Stuff we need to know is yeah, just sort of establishing. It's not a flashback from Lost. Establishing his credentials there. At one point, the one thing that jumped out to me is at one point he's talking about one of the investigators who apparently liked to wear a fedora. And he says um, he, he used to wear a hat of the kind worn by Harrison Ford when he was portraying the character of Dr. Henry Walton, Indiana Jones. And it's like, why did you not just say Indiana Jones? Everybody knows who Indiana Jones is. Why did you give his full name other than the fact that you happened to know the full thing and you wanted to get as much detail in as possible? And also that that's one. one of those things you kind of feel the author's gone. Let me just go to Wikipedia it does to find a little out bit, what the yeah. characters are. Oh, yeah. Dr. Henry Walton, Indiana Jones. Hmm. Well, maybe it's a reference to the famous Australian soap opera, The Waltons. Probably not. Uh, so there's, 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 in some cases, it felt like a little bit much detail, but most of the time, um, he does a really good job of presenting quite technical sort of information to a non-technical audience. There's a lot of, um, you know, the, 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 the actual methods that they use to hunt, well, first of all, there's sort of the, the, um, uh, aer what is it, aeronautics, the, the, technology behind airplanes and and the radar tracking of them and checking in and what air traffic control towers do and all that sort of stuff and the the routes they fly and so on and then once it becomes obvious the plane's missing and the search effort is in is in full swing there's lots of um, lots of lots of quite clever stuff really that they were doing as well as you know the, the plane has these transponders that give it location and which were which notoriously notably were turned off but then there was sort of you know these other sort of handshake signals and they think well actually if we even though this isn't made to track position, if we do sort of measure the ping time in between, that gives us some sort of a dis uh, idea of how far it was from the station, and then looking at sort of, you know, underwater sonography stuff, the things that they use to detect earthquakes under the sea and so on, could those microphones possibly be studied to see if they picked up the impact of a plane hitting the water and so on and so on and so on. Um, and he goes through all of this, he'll sort of, you know, mention a technology, sometimes he'll say, look, this is just too complicated, you know, would go for pages and pages of equations to actually explain how the whole thing works. But most of the time it's, here is this technology, here's what it means in layman's terms, um, here's this term which is going to come up a lot, things like the seventh arc comes up a lot, which is sort of an arc around the Earth where the radar positioning says they're most likely to be, um, various acronyms, various terminology and so on, and he'll explain what, he'll explain what they mean. Um, and and so that so that makes up sort of I don't know at, at least half the book probably the actual the, the technical details of the hunting um, and 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 the where's and the why's and this is where things well, start so to before, get a little bit tricky. Before you get there, so you're saying he's quite good at expl explaining the technical stuff. Is that because of his background? Um, well, quite possibly. I mean, th this man, he is, he is a, a journalist who works for the Australian newspaper. He called, the, called Australian. the Australian. Um, and he's been covering this thing a lot. He's been dealing with government agencies a lot from the sounds, sounds of things and is used to getting the runaround with his Freedoms of Information Acts and so on. But he's talked to a lot of people who also know what they're talking about. In particular, 
there's uh let me just check the references in the book itself which are right at the back not where i thought they were there we go uh ma270 mystery solved by larry vance uh, so MA270 Mystery Solved is a bit more of a bombastic title, but um, that was a book that came out before this one, where um, Mr. Vance, who's a Canadian, I think, um, air crash investigator, puts forward the case that, yes, no, it had to have been uh, crashed by Ahmed, um, Ahmed Zawi, he's the other guy, Ahmed Zahari the captain of the flight, um, which appears to be the consensus these days, but it wasn't so much the consensus at the time, which is kind of where all the conspiracy cover-up-y stuff... All right, take kind of me really through in. the conspiracies. Right, well, he... Um, actually, I, I should say he, he goes through, sort of interspersed throughout the book at various points, he he'll goes through five of the sort of leading theories um, about what happened to H370. He doesn't at any point go into the wackier, there was no plane, uh, the, the, they never crashed, the people were, were kidnapped or who knows what. He didn't, you know, none of that stuff. It's only the more sort of, I guess, respectable theories. Starting with the theory that it was Captain Zahari, it was a murder-suicide, he deliberately hijacked and crashed his own plane to kill everyone on board. Um, and he he presents these in kind of fictional accounts. He does. He, yeah. he, he writes right, so it. That's he does sort of the, the riveting thriller part of the review might possibly a bit. Yeah, yeah. So he, he does. You know, he, he says you know these are fictional accounts of what might have happened if this were the thing that actually uh, were, were, were the, the scenario that were true. He sort of looks out. Uh, Murder-suicide by Captain Sahari, uh, the idea that Captain Sahari did hijack and crash the plane but bailed out beforehand and had arranged to sort of go off with someone else and start a new life elsewhere. Oh, so this is the the girlfriend The hypothesis. girlfriend hypothesis, yeah. yeah. Uh, Which we've covered on the podcast in the past. I'm pretty sure we've covered most of this. The idea that there was um, a catastrophic fire on board. He imagines a scenario where sort of there's a fire in the cockpit, They the pilots reach for their gas masks, a cord is accidentally pulled out flooding the cockpit with oxygen which makes the fire rage out of control and so on and so forth, causing the crash. The idea that it could have been a thwarted terrorist hijacking, a la Flight 93 and 9-11, where the, 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 the passengers fought back, so maybe that's the idea. And finally, the idea that some sort of um, failure uh, caused rapid decompression throughout the plane, causing everybody to lose consciousness and the plane to drift into the sea. And that is the theory that the was sort of adopted by the ATSB when they were first um, conducting the search. Yeah, because in a lot of the initial story about the what happened to flight MH370 in the months after the event either focused on the fire on board or the hypoxia mm. hypothesis, because people were looking at what transponder material we had and what reports we had going back to home base and looking at that data going, can we see a engineering problem here? That explains why the flight went away, and there were certain flags that made people went, well, maybe that's the sign of a fire, hmm. maybe it's not. And so a lot of theorizing went into trying to explain the event with respect to what we might call natural causes hmm. there, or an act of God, as opposed to a deliberate attack upon the passengers by the pilot or someone in the cabin at the time. Hmm. Yes, and in each of those five scenarios he goes through, Higgins afterwards sort of basically says this sort of 
this this is stuff that could happen and indeed has happened before. He lists cases of hijack. He mentions the DB Cooper case when he's talking about the idea of Another a person thing hijacking a plane about yep, on this podcast and did bailing out afterwards. He talks about planes that have indeed crashed due to catastrophic fly, uh, fires. He obviously talks about Flight uh, ninety three when talking about terrorist hijackings. Uh, he talks about real flights where there has been um, rapid decompression and and the way the way it affects the brain and um, people very very quickly, including the pilots of the plane, lose the ability to perform competently and so on and so forth. Um, so these things were all going around. Now, the ATSB, I, I sort of, Higgins doesn't appear to have much sympathy for them at all, given, given his dealings with them, as we'll see, but I, I do have a bit of sympathy for them to begin with, because it does seem they were a little bit, a little bit sort of hamstrung in what they could and couldn't say, in that they were very much, all we want to do is find the plane. We, it's not our job to investigate why it crashed. It's not our job to say if someone might have been responsible for it or if it was an accident or whatever. Uh, that you know, we don't want to be saying any of that sort of stuff. But the problem is that matters because if it was deliberate, then that you know has much different implications about which way the plane may have gone afterwards and how it would have entered the water and so on and so forth. So they they didn't want to say whether or not it could have been a deliberate crash or, or what. They just wanted to say, we want to, just want to find the plane, um, while at the same time sort of saying, you know, if perhaps it had been deliberately crashed into the ocean, then this maybe, and if it hadn't, then that and so on. So they were, their hands were tied a little bit in what they couldn't, couldn't, couldn't say to begin with. But um, eventually it reaches the point where they're, they're, you know, they've gone through all these techniques that, that, um, that Mr. Higgins does a very good job of, of explaining how, how it all works and, and trying to figure out, you know, the ocean is vast. We, you know, and, and resources are finite. We have to constrain our search to a particular area of the ocean. What is the most likely area of the ocean for us to find wreckage of this plane? And by, by the time it had sort of... Um, that that they were getting to this stage, I don't think anyone believed. Well, I don't think anyone conducting the search believed that they were finding anything other than wreckage and bodies. There are some of the family members it goes into who, you know, until bodies are found, will refuse to believe that their loved ones are dead and so on and so forth. But it, it did very much seem to be a search for wreckage at this point. Um, so they're like, okay, where, where do we search? Give me the analysis. Give us the probabilities and so on and so forth. And they have to make the decision. Is it more likely that it was a controlled, i.e. deliberate, ditching into the water, or was it an uncontrolled ditching, and which would be more likely to be some sort of a deep dive into the ocean? And the way Higgins portrays it, they go for the theory that it was an uncontrolled dive into the ocean, and one of the main considerations seems to be that that basically gives them a smaller search area. Um, if you were to assume that... Did we just lose a light? On we've, we've already lost one before, so now, now it's... Madness, it's getting dim in here. It's, it's actually quite good. It adds to the atmosphere, I think, as the mystery thickens. We need to put some kind of low thrumming bass mm, sound mm. Kind of the, the notion of increasing urgency as we get closer and closer to the actual conspiracy. So we should be doing that in every episode. We should actually, yes. We should try to find the brown note. Ooh, <laughs> that would probably backfire on us much more than our listeners, I would Well, say. no, because we, we would just put oh, so it over the on after Yeah, so we would right. never hear the brown note. Mm, indeed. You would hear the brown note. Maybe you're hearing the brown note right now. Indeed. 
Anyway, so the point is, um, if you were to assume that the flight was it was a controlled ditching, then that gives you much more variables and therefore would require a much larger search area. And in the interests of basically keeping the budget, keep keeping to their budget, it would seem, that at least that's the way it's, it's sort of put across in the book, they make the assumption that no, it was an uncontrolled ditching and we're going to search this area, which is the most likely area for of the ocean. For podcast listeners, Josh has just drawn a very small little, circle little or vector. square with his hands. Not to scale, I should say to our video listeners, the area was... Well, that would make it large. really easy to that search, would, I think. Would, yeah, it would have been over instantly. Um, and so, so that's it. So they, they've made their decision, and at that point they kind of have to stick with it. Um, and so as more and more... And, and from fairly early on, people were saying no, the, for various reasons, were saying no, it must, it, it, it couldn't have been an uncon... The, the, the scenario that it was the pilots, you know, deliberately flying off course is the only one that makes sense, and therefore you shouldn't be searching there, you should be searching here. And indeed some people were sort of saying... Some some of the suggestions they were getting from people were not far outside of the area they were searching, but they were like, no, this is this is what we've chosen. This is what we're going to do, um, and and sort of as it, so th this is where things sort of start to become a bit more conspiratorial because as the search goes on, as the evidence mounts up, and it starts to look more and more and more like it was indeed a controlled ditching, a deliberate act by the captain. Um, that kind of starts to look more and more like they're searching in the wrong place. But um, they've committed a hell of a lot in terms of time and money and resources into it, and I guess there are reputations on the line a little bit. Um, and so it really starts to feel like they start digging in their heels. Um, and so this is where sort of the relationship between, in particular, Mr Higgins and the ATSB starts to become a little bit fraught. Fraught in what way? Well, I mean, he... he, he um, sort of talks about the, the process he tends to have is uh, he, he asks for a bit of information. Um, his strategy was ask for information. If they don't give it, put in a freedom of information request. If that comes back, no, we've elected to suppress the information for whatever reason, then publish this information was suppressed by and give the name of the specific individual who, who issued that order as a way of trying to at the very least you know give some accountability and maybe embarrass or shame or or in, that in seems like a mechanism that can backfire on you really easily. Well, it does. And I mean, there are stories of, you know, the ATSB saying, look, we're not going to work with, t talking to his publisher, talking to the Australian, saying we're not going to work with Higgins anymore. We'll, we'll tell, give other people information. We're not going to talk to him. Are they allowed to do that? Not really. And, and, and his publisher at every point was like, no, get stuffed. You, you can't yeah. do that. With You're not actually this. allowed to deny someone access to information under the kind of freedom of information mm. access request system that Australia has. So, yeah, so they do get a little bit pissy at him there um so yeah he he, he sort of maintains that they end up kind of try, uh, abusing the freedom of information because there are all sorts of regulations and so on to, that, that allow a person to say no we've chosen to suppress this information and it doesn't we're not going to release it after your request and he, he sort of says that they end up that they will happily release information that supports their theory but they will then suppress information that would refute their theory, or that would be evidence against their theory. And that does suggest some kind of, at least covering their asses, mm. if not an actual conspiracy. Yep. So there are two things where he gets on the, the, the FOI train that he talks about a lot in the book. The first one actually isn't related um, to this 
this this at all really. It's about um, the Chinese search vessel Donghaizhu 101. Um, this was obviously you know lots of countries were involved in the search. Lots of lots of countries um, offered up resources and ships and so on. This particular ship. Um, people started started noticing that for a search ship, it wasn't doing a lot of searching. It sort of went out briefly and then suffered some sort of malfunction and had to come back to port. And they went out again, and then something uh, something happened with the crew member or something. And they had to go back to port, and then it just kind of stayed there. And people were saying, why why is this Chinese search vessel not doing much searching and just spending all its time docked at Fremantle in Australia? And that caused people to say. Do you think maybe it's a spy ship, and the Chinese have got it there to sort of, you know, gather and gather intel and check, monitor who's coming and going, and and you know, snooping on whatever it is they can snoop on, and so on. And so they started putting in freedom of information requests, essentially saying, "Can you please tell us what this ship's been doing and why it's been spending so much time in dock?" And those were all refused. Those were all suppressed. And then eventually, the ship just kind of slunk off back to China. Um, so that might be a justified refusal under the foyer mm. for the sheer fact it's a foreign power. Yeah, yes. I mean you could understand the justification, but that was certainly quite a quite a conspiratorial yep. little little happening. But the main thing he really goes at is um this this claim of consensus. Is he gonna be a climate change denier? Because they they, so. they go on about consensus. Now this is going about consensus in a different way. Oh, okay. So we have um there's the ATSB, the Australian Transport Safety Bureau. They put together the JACC, the Joint Agency Coordination Centre, which was sort of the 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 organisation organisation was formed specifically to manage the the search for MH370. In July of 2016, the JACC released a bulletin that was basically trying to discredit the controlled ditching hypothesis. It was them saying, you know, here's why we don't think that was a good hypothesis and why we're sticking to our guns and going with the, the idea that it was an uncontrolled ditching. And at one point it includes, this is indeed the consensus of the Search Strategy Working Group. Now the Search Strategy Working Group, or SSWG, um, was a group of, of international experts that were sort of acting in an advisory capacity to the ATSB. They were sort of, you know, experts from around the world who were just giving their input. Now the next day, the bulletin was very quietly amended to remove that sentence, saying that that was the consensus of the SSWG. And Higgins is on that like a dog with a bone. He's 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 like, okay, this right, finally, this is this this is a crack. This is a crack in the armor. This is them trying to hide the fact that they know that there isn't consensus that their theory, the theory they're sticking to is the right theory. And he sort of thinks he's finally got his proof. And so there's a fair bit of the book of him, his his efforts to basically get them to front up to why did you remove that? And it's sort of like on itself, it seems quite a trivial. It's one sentence in one bulletin that he's going on and on and on at them about why did you remove it? Why did they say, is it really the consensus of the SSWG and so on and so on? Um, but this is sort of, this is kind of his in, I guess. This is him it's trying to... the crack to, in the armour that makes yeah. him go, hmm, interesting. So, so sort of the last, I don't know, third of the book or so, it's no longer really about the, the the mechanics of the hunt for MH370 and the technical details. It all becomes about the ATSB's handling of the case and his dealings with them, trying to get information out of them, um, and trying to establish the case that the ATSB eventually knows they're in the wrong but isn't going to admit it and is going to stick to their guns because there's just too much money and, and resource and so on, and it would basically admit 
it would mean admitting that they've been searching in the wrong place the whole time and would, would, would reflect badly on all involved. And that's in part because he finds there are more and more officials who are beginning to go, well, maybe the controlled ditching theory isn't a bad one after all. Yeah, I mean, as time goes by, people sort of become more and more, the officials sort of become more and more hedgy in their language and will sort of say, will sort of start saying, you know, it was always, the, the, the uncontrolled ditching theory was always a possibility and this this is another possibility and so on and so forth. So I, I don't know that their position has officially changed at all, but it they're does seem they're just sort of very quietly drifting into, yeah. the, into that. So they've gone from, no, that's a nonsense hypothesis, to, well, you know, it should at least be considered mm. in our calculus. So, I mean, and so Higgins talks to a lot of the experts. He talks to Mr. Vance in particular, and it, um, one big thing was that when they found that flapper on, the bit of, the bit of wreckage that washed up in... You're a flapper You're a flapper on. Washed up uh, off... So does mum. Off, off the coast of Mauritius, I think it was east of africa um and that 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 one piece is what a lot of people this mr vance in particular the guy who wrote the book mh370 mystery solved whatever it's called um they they're sort of looking at that that one piece they say right well this is this is proof positive that it had to have been a controlled ditching because if it had been a dive, this thing th- th- there would be nothing left of this. Yeah, part. It would have just been ripped. It would have been it would have been shattered to pieces. Yeah. It would have, um, and the fact that there was sort of wearing on it, which was consistent with it sort of being buffeted, dragged through the water as the plane slowly sort of ditches rather than diving straight down, and so on and so forth. Um, and he sort of makes the, it's significant that um, Mauritius, I assume, is still a French territory or something. But it was the French who got their hands on this piece of wreckage um, and the French do, did sort of have a stake in it because there were a couple of French citizens on MH370 and they'd kind of been shut out of the investigation so far so they had their bit of evidence now and they could conduct their own damn investigation didn't care what anyone else said and so that was sort of where a lot more a lot more international attention started coming into the fact that no it does look like the most likely theory is the controlled ditching so uh, that, that's kind of where it ends. Um, there's so it doesn't really end conclusively. No, it just no. ends with the ATSB is doing bad things. They're bad people and don't trust. They're covering them. stuff up. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. he, he, at no point does he claim to have no, know where H three seventy is. At no point does he claim to have proved definitively exactly what happened. But he does make a very strong case that the the most likely theory is the theory that Captain Zahari deliberately crashed his plane into the ocean, which means the ATSP got it wrong, um, and and which means they have been sort of covering this up for a long time to preserve their own reputations, I guess. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. It is. Now, tell me about remote-controlled planes. Well, this is one last little thing that comes up, interestingly. When, when we're talking about conspiracy, he doesn't go into the wacky conspiracy theories, but he does mention a couple of people bring up the complaint, the, bring up the, the claim that planes... The complaint. Not the complaint. The claim that planes, uh, that Boeing planes can be controlled remotely, that Boeing has worked this technology into the aeroplanes so that um, in specifically in case of a terrorist hijacking, uh, someone remotely can actually take control of the plane completely and shut out everyone on board. And this area, of course, has come up in many 9-11 conspiracy mm. theories. Now, I, I actually, unfortunately, I didn't take a note of it the first time it comes up in the book because it was brought up by, I think it was... Um, at one point, one of the things that comes up, there's a whole lot of international politics, of course. At one point, there's a change of government in Malaysia, um, and so that sort of changes priorities and, and how the search is being managed and so on and so forth. And I think it was 
the possibly the leader, one of the people of the incoming government or something, happens to mention this theory to him. I think it was prior to the election when he was talking to, to the, the big names in the election and so on. Um, and at the time I thought, huh. And then it comes up later in the book, and I thought, oh, okay, so this is actually a thing that people talk about, but then I couldn't go back, I couldn't find when I was uh, flipping through the book, trying to come up with my notes, the exact name of the person who mentioned it. But yeah, several people come up with this the claim, and then eventually when it's when he, he sort of brings it up again, supposedly this technology has been looked into. People have, you know, people have genuinely said, look, we're worried about planes being hijacked. What if we make it so that if we have if we have proof that a plane's been hijacked, we can actually take control of the plane off the hijackers. So even in case of a Flight 93 type scenario, there goes another light, it's getting spookier and spookier in here. In the case of a Flight 93 type scenario where terrorists, are, where um, passengers are fighting back and the terrorists would therefore be inclined to crash the plane just to kill everyone, we could take control of them entirely and fly the plane ourselves. Um, so apparently it has been looked into, but does hasn't actually been put in practice yet. In well, that's what they want you to but think. But that's what they want you to yeah. think, yes. So I think that's about all we have to say about this book. Um, in terms of an actual book review, like in terms of a verdict on it, um, it, it leaves no stone uncut. If you want to know everything there is to know about how people have conducted the hunt for H370, uh, this would be a very good book to read, basically. There's a lot of detail, and, and to, to my mind, too much detail in places, but you might differ. Um, and yeah, he, he sets out his case well, and um, I think brings it in. So, and, uh, ends, I should say, on a, I, I guess, hopeful note, just on the note that, well, you know, maybe it's not going to happen, maybe not even in our lifetime, but the, these things are, you know, wrecks get found. He gives various cases of, of you know, things that, that were underwater from, you know, World War One or Two or what have you, and eventually someone will come across a technology, will advance, it'll happen, you know, one of these days, we'll know. But for now, this looks to be our best bet. So, giving a star rating between 12 and 87, how many stars would you give it? Uh, some, I would say. Well, oh, that's a resounding mm. recommendation from Josh, who doesn't even like reading because, as mentioned before, it gives people cancer. Mm. Specifically everyone else around me. That's why I don't do it, for the good of mankind. Yeah, it's, it's true. Yeah. He does think he's doing it for the good of mankind because he's sexist. Oh, yeah. Totally. Thought we'd establish that. But for non-sexist mm. news updates for our lovely patrons who come from all aspects of the gender spectrum, we've got news galore. Now, of course, we've got Trump news. We've got so much Trump news. We have an update on a Sandy Hook lawsuit. We have an update on what Jack Wall and Jack Berkman have been up to, which is just more amusing than it is actually interesting. I think so. We've got Hillary Clinton news, which is just kind of weird. Nothing and to do with emails or Benghazi, though. No, so no, just, it's, uh, it's, yeah. it's uniquely Hillary Clinton news, mm -hmm. and it's uniquely modern American news. Mm -hmm. And finally, we've got some UK news, which may or may not be Brexit-related. May or may not? Okay, we'll just leave it, leave it up in the air like yeah. that. Yeah, it okay. may or may not be Brexit-related. Um, so... Thank you for watching. To our patrons, thank you for patronising. To people who and don't want to be to our, our patron, listeners uh, and watchers, uh, like last week, we're having some technical issues at the moment. We're, We've got sound issues. The lights aren't working properly at the moment. As far as I'm aware, the camera hasn't slipped out of its holding, but who knows what it's actually done mm. in the interim. 
at the moment, even though we don't believe in curses, we do seem to be cursed with some kind of technological issue. So I apologize in advance for any issues you might encounter whilst listening to this podcast, including any brown note related incidents. Mm. This would be totally coincidental, I'm sure. Yes, because totally. I actually have to put a brown note in. Yeah. And that, I mean, given but the some sort of, of technological issues we've got yeah. at yeah. the moment, it would just, it would just, it would backfire on everyone. And no, you don't want to <laughs> backfiring brown notes. No, you do not. Uh, so I think before anything else can go wrong, uh, we should probably just bring things to a close in the traditional method by saying goodbye. Goodbye? Goodbye. 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 You've been listening to the podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, hosted by Josh Addison and M. Dentith. If you'd like to help support us, please find details of our pledge drive at either Patreon or Podbean. If you'd like to get in contact with us, email us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com. Back in our fourth ever episode, we started our discussion of the fate of Malaysian Airlines flight MH370 with the following. It's a new theme song. It is. You're done.